the words of Jesus in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show. And with me again is my wonderful co-host, Cameron Cote. Hello, sir. Hey, Peter. Thanks so much. It has been a, a bit of an odd week for me here, actually, in Calgary, because I think this is the first week since April that I haven't done any CSPR activism. Um, we have been winding down. For year's end, for the last little bit, uh, all the restrictions and whatnot have held us up a little bit, but I had a great conversation I'll share briefly. We got named Alexander, seminarian in Vancouver, who really wanted to get out and do Choice Chain with our team in the new year, and so I had a great conversation with him. We got a new, fantastic volunteer joining the team in Vancouver. That was a highlight of my week. How's your week been? Yeah, re- really good. If, if anyone's wondering what Choice Chain is... Uh, Choice Chain is one of the projects we do here at CCBR. It's a very, very conversational project where we show people images of what abortion is and we engage them in conversation. And many times, Cam, you can attest to this, as can I. We have seen people change their minds. My week has been pretty busy. Uh, I'm a student, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, and I had my exams this week. So I was uh, crushing notes and and getting through readings and... uh, yeah, just studying a lot. I'm, I'm so happy that I'm done right now. And uh, as we're winding down, as you say, I'm, I'm getting into some of the books that um, I've wanted to for a little while. Uh, right now, I'm in the middle of Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement by our colleague Jonathan Van Maren. And I have a few more others on my list that I'm excited to dive into as well, just to just to help develop my my understanding of the issues surrounding the abortion conversation. Anyway... As we get into the conversation today, we have a wonderful guest on, but before we uh, introduce him, I just want to say this one thing. We have a giveaway going on. Uh, We are giving away a signed copy, signed by the author and Cam and I, the pro-life guys, of Stuck, uh, a complete guide to answering tough questions about abortion. And this is one of our favorite resources. I'm going to share a little bit more how you can win that at the end of the program today, or you can check it out on our Instagram page or a Facebook page, find us. We are the Pro-Life Guys podcast. 
All right, today we are joined by the one and only Daniel Gilman, the Reverend Daniel Gilman, uh, has been a friend of mine for quite some time, and he does some phenomenal work. He is a an ordained Christian apologist with the Anglican Network in Canada. Um, so that's that's his deal. He's a full time Christian apologist, but he also fights and has fought abortion, human trafficking, sex trafficking, pornography, and has stood in the gap, stood with the vulnerable and marginalized. Uh, many, many, many times over the course of the last many years. We're going to talk about that with him. Um, and today we're focusing on the, Christi- the, the Christmas story uh, with Daniel. As you know, uh, Christmas is just around the corner. We're recording this just a few days before the 25th of December, Christmas Day. And so we want to have a conversation with Daniel about some of the, the intersections between the conversations that we have uh, these days on the topic of abortion and what it has to do with or what Jesus's birth and his life uh, and and the details surrounding his birth and his life have to do with uh, this cultural moment that we are in today. Cam, is there anything that you want to add to that to 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 kick this off, or should we get get going in the conversation? You know what? Let's just dive into it, Peter. I am excited to hear from Daniel. Let's just dive into it. All right, guys. Here is the conversation. We loved it. We we really enjoyed it, and we hope you enjoyed it just as much. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Peter. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly good to have you. As we kick things off, we would love to get to know you a little bit more. You have been involved defending human rights in in such a wide variety of areas. You've worked uh, against abortion. You fought porn and human trafficking and sex trafficking, and and a bunch of other things. So, could you share with us a little bit about who you are as a person? Uh, you're also a, a Christian apologist, as we mentioned earlier on. And where does your passion come from to fight all of these things? Sure. Yeah. Well, some of you listening would know my sister, Devorah. Uh, she is the, there's, there's 10 children in my family, although we're not Catholic. And uh, she's the one just younger than me. So we grew up very close. And even when we were little children, we would meet just before our bedtimes and just pray together for anybody we knew that was actively fighting abortion. And that same passion continued into university uh, when at the University of Ottawa in 2008, some students came together and started a pro-life campus club, got wind of that, joined them. And it was that movement, the pro-life movement that helped me kind of was my gateway into human rights work. Gotcha. And and you've, so when you talk about human rights work, you've done human rights work, not just on a local level, not just on a regional level, but you've done it um, at a national and international level, right? And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the the um, issues as it were. I, I know that we try not to talk about them as the issues because that's kind of a, a broad generalization, but like the the different human rights violations that you've advocated against and and kind of the level and experience that you've had working on them. Can you share a little bit about, yeah, what you've worked on and in what kind of forums you've worked on them in? Sure. Yeah, in 2012, I got invited by a member of parliament whose full-time focus was fighting human trafficking. And she hired me to be her full-time speech writer. So in that capacity, I got to be preparing her speeches for both within Parliament, as well as she would speak at a whole variety of conferences around the world. Uh, she did one of the, my favorite speeches we got to write was uh, the Global Conference for Female Police Officers. And she did a workshop for them on how it's best practices for fighting human trafficking as law enforcement. And uh, I got to write that speech. I had to do the research because I definitely did not know that stuff off the top of my head. 
so um, I was able to get into the anti-human trafficking world through working with her. Um, and on a similar level, I eventually was invited after she retired to go work for another member of parliament, Arnold Viersen. And one of his priorities is fighting human trafficking and pornography. So I got to work with him in that respect. Uh, so much of porn is just filmed human trafficking that's put online. And so there's so much overlap there. And I got to work with him. But my primary job for Arnold was not his work fighting human trafficking, but rather he's also the chair of the Parliamentary Pro-Life Caucus. And so I got to work at a, at a national level with him facilitating the pro-life members of parliament, as well as their connection to grassroots Canadians. Uh, on the pro-life side, I also got to be a board member with National Campus Life Network. So they were that organization that helps campus clubs like the one I mentioned, Ottawa U, be most effective at university campuses. So I got to work with them. Uh, I, I haven't done too much internationally besides some initiatives with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Uh, so it's been an uh, absolute joy to a little bit of stuff volunteer-wise uh, across the border. And then um, I've also had the privilege now, just only twice, I, I got to meet up with the pro-life caucus, the, so the, the pro-life uh, members of parliament, uh, the, the ones who facilitate all that stuff in the UK. And this, I also was down in Australia where I got to meet with a couple different um, senior politicians, an associate minister of defense. I got to meet with a senator, which in Australia means more than it does in Canada, and got to meet with them to discuss issues of fighting porn, abortion, human trafficking, and related issues. Yeah, on on the topic of porn, I'm just just thinking about the the whole thing that's happening right now with Pornhub. There's the initial initial article that came out in the New York Times last week or two weeks ago about the children of Pornhub, and then Visa and Mastercard canceled their, uh, yeah, just didn't allow users to to use their cards on Pornhub's website. Now there's a lawsuit. I think it's with 40 women for 40 million dollars against uh, against Pornhub for keeping videos up of their sexual assault and all of that. So that's really, really cool. For, for someone who's worked, uh, this is an aside because we're here to talk more about abortion, but for someone who's worked in the movement fighting porn, fighting human trafficking, fighting sex trafficking, like what is your response to this? How, how do you feel just seeing something so big as um, we, we're seeing governments around the world take notice of Pornhub and the injustices that are happening there? Uh, we're seeing lawsuits starting to happen. We're seeing big global companies um, not allowing users to to use their products on Pornhub's websites. Um, just respond to that for a second. Yeah, I, I feel cautious optimism. Um, I've, I've worked on Parliament Hill for about 12 years, and I've seen how quickly politicians are uh, hungry to be seen uh, standing with the vulnerable. And I've also seen how slow politicians are to truly share in the plight of the vulnerable. And I'm convinced that to stand with the vulnerable means placing your position and placing yourself in a position of vulnerability. And, and the difference between a photo op with someone who's hurting and standing with them is whether or not you're going to share in their pain and their powerlessness. And powerlessness in politicians, they don't, don't, they don't often mix. And so when I see uh, all of a sudden uh, all these politicians speaking up and preparing all this stuff, I, I'm cautiously optimistic because they seem to be ready to put action to their words but i'm only cautiously optimistic because uh i have just been so often disappointed 
Yeah. For, for someone who's worked in politics then, I mean, this this was your job. You, you worked for the Pro-Life Caucus. You worked fighting human human trafficking. And and I, I, I suspect one of your jobs was trying to get politicians to care about the issues that you were bringing forward Absolutely. and and write speeches in ways that, you know, these other politicians will take notice. But if, if that's the general vibe that we see politicians having, if the general vibe is, you know, we want this photo op, but we're not actually going to stand with them because that's way more uncomfortable than just getting a photo op and looking nice in the newspapers. How, how do you motivate people in politics uh, and just within the whole political realm to to work for justice for the vulnerable? Yeah, that's a question we were very much asking ourselves, as well as experts across Canada and the world, is how do we ignite people, not simply to be willing to associate with a cause, but actually advance that cause. There's a few different things we tried, and, and I do think it made a difference. I, I should say the, what inspired us to kind of really ask that question was we would have these pro-life caucus meetings about once a month, try to get members of parliament in the room. And uh, we, we would provide food, so chicken wings and delicious chicken wings and fries, whatever. We would try to keep our ear to the ground on what the politicians would like to eat and get those very things. And uh, there are times that there's a specific politician and we, like, we get someone to let us know like, what, their, uh, what their appetite is. I'm like, hey, we're going to let them know this food. You know, we, we got this. And, um, and we got to fill out the room. It was, we had a, a just delightful delightfully surprised to find that we went from about four members of parliament to not enough room space in the room not enough chairs and had to have the door open so that there's people kind of in the other room who are poking their heads in and yet we we just did not find that there was actual actionable items being embraced and, and there was just one particular day it was a day after a pro-life caucus meeting where we got a, a call from a member of parliament and they were like hey i just i just wanted to get this off my chest uh, by the time I showed up a bit, uh, just a little bit late, and there was no chicken wings. <laughs> and I, I, I talked to them, assured them we'd have more chicken wings. I hung up the phone. I just turned to one of my colleagues, and I just said, like, I, I love chess. I, 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 I'm not knocking the Queen's Gambit. I haven't seen it. But I just said, like, this isn't the chess club. This isn't the chess caucus. This is about fighting against the, the intentional tearing apart and slaughter of preborn babies in Canada. Like what, the, like, were you coming to the pro-life caucus for chicken wings? I probably should have both loved the babies we're fighting for and this member of parliament enough to have just said that to this member of parliament. But uh, I kept my, kept my words to myself, but I was just so frustrated, but well, not to myself, I shared with my colleague, but the two of us just sat there and, and that was a turning point for us because we realized we really needed to ground the pro-life caucus and remind them and ourselves why we're meeting. And so the chair of the pro-life caucus, Arnold Viersen, uh, he ended up being gifted with, and gift is a funny word, but he was gifted with the, the, the abortion tool. It was it actually, it was a used abortion tool. And so what we would do for the, the next protracted season of meetings is that we would pass that tool around at the start and each member of parliament would hold it. And then you'd have a minute of silence and just seek to honor the lives that were lost. The 300 innocent babies' lives who were lost that day that day and just have time to just be silent to honor and remember them and then commit ourselves to action and and that i think helped make a difference and so and it's just very important that we're not trying to talk about pro-life work as if it's an issue but to remember the real life stories the stories we'll never be able to tell of these lives because they've been cut short 
Yeah, and I find that so interesting. I think that's probably a shared experience for a lot of people who've done any form of pro-life outreach. I know that every time I go and I give workshops to new pro-lifers on how to have good, effective conversations, as soon as we open it up for Q&A, I always get the question, what is the best argument against the pro-life position? And, and the people who ask it are anticipating, what about sexual assault? Or what about uh, the violinist or the burning IVF clinic or something like this? And my response, I remember I, I actually asked Peter this when we were on retreat in September to see what, what he would say when this came up. And, and more and more, I'm realizing that the best argument against the pro-life position, in my experience, is apathy. Absolutely. Is people just saying, I don't care. I, I'm not passionate about that. I remember I was actually giving a, a fundraising presentation to some people in Victoria that I was hoping would come on and financially support the work that I was doing. And, and at the end of the presentation, we had shown an abortion video and everything of like, this is what's happening in Canada. We desperately need more people working full time to save babies. And, and this woman who was very active in the church just said, you know, I'm just not passionate about abortion. It's just not my issue. And, and I just had no idea what to say. And so I'm sure this is something that uh, many pro-lifers grapple with of how to actually motivate people to, to care. And I think that you hit the nail on the head of making it real for them, right? Whether that's through abortion victim photography or whether that's through, like you said, an abortion tool that really shows them that this isn't just about statistics, right? And sometimes we throw around the statistic of 100,000 children every year. And yet when you pass around a tool and say, this tool ripped one baby's leg off and then that same baby's next leg and then the arms and then piece by piece, it often makes it so much more real. And I think that that's one of the strongest arguments for abortion victim photography and um, other ways of, of making this issue a lot more real to people. Absolutely. And even in our language around what we're talking about as our cause, I, I know that when I was uh, much younger and I would see a, a news article on the March for Life, I'd get so frustrated when I'd see these these uh, pro-abortion journalists refer to the anti-abortion activists. And I, no, I'm not anti-abortion, I'm pro-life. And I, like, I, pro-life is a positive thing. And I felt like they were trying to cast us in negative light. I did my master's on the movement to end the slave trade that was led by William Wilberforce from uh, in the end of the 18th century into the beginning of the 19th century. And I, I noticed that he did not cast himself as the pro-freedom member of parliament, but he was clear that he was the anti-slavery, the anti-slave trade MP, and that he called on people to be willing to be, again, not only willing, but like, would, like, how can you not be against the slave trade? How can you not be anti-slave trade until people like, felt that they, they had to if they were to live with themselves? And I, I've noticed, and I'm, I'm so thankful for the fact that the much of the pro-life movement is recasting itself as laser focused. We're anti-abortion and we're not afraid of that title because we realize that it is a very positive thing to be against something that is taking innocent lives. Mm hmm. And, and I think that speaks as well to going beyond yourself. I think not only tying in the Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade, but also the mobilization of people that often this notion of, well, abortion isn't an issue in my home or in my church or in my community. And the apathy that can also come from that of just people saying, yeah, abortion's terrible and awful. And thankfully, we've taught all of our children and everyone in our church is completely on board. Um, what more do you want from me? sort of thing. I, I think so often Christians are like anyone else. I don't think this is a uniquely Christian problem, but looking for what is sufficient. What what do I need to do to satisfy the demand so that I can move on with my time and my energy and whatever? And if I've made my family and made sure that my, my pro-life community is pro-life, 
then that's enough. But really, we're calling people to action. We're calling people to go outside of their immediate sphere of influence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I find that sometimes I can find myself too focused on how do I inspire others to action. But I and we each and everyone listening, including us right now, need to continually remember how can I, how can I, how can I myself be re-inspired and for me one of the one of the ways i do that is by reading or watching the stories of people who have stood with the vulnerable who have placed themselves in a position of vulnerable for the well-being of others and one of my favorite examples and kind of guiding principles is harriet tubman uh, the fact that she like so many people made the incredibly painful dangerous heroic escape from the southern states all the way up to canada to freedom but unlike almost everybody else who had earned that freedom, they'd fought for that freedom, they'd won their freedom in Canada, she turned around and went back. And I don't, like, I walk my wife to work a couple of days a week, it's a 30 minute walk, and I feel a bit like a hero, like an awesome husband, like 30 minutes there, and then I do the walk back, we don't have a vehicle, downtown loving. But, like, she, the, the trek, just imagine the trek from the southern states all the way up with people who are chasing you, who are ready to destroy you, and she, she goes all the way back by foot and then guides people up. And she did it enough that not only was she doing this with the risk of being someone who themselves could have been re-enslaved, but she had her face plastered all around America as someone who the slave catchers were trying to catch and maybe even kill. And yet she did this not once, not twice, not three times, not four. She had 13 times she made that perilous journey. And when I see that, I just, I, 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 it always causes me to look at my life and see what are the ways that I am selfishly enjoying my freedom? And are there any more ways that I can use my freedom and my voice to be a voice for others? I, I think as human beings, and especially as Christians, what it really means to be human, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus is that we're people who will share in the, who will, who will stand with the crushed and the silence that will share in their being crushed, but refuse to be silenced. That we have to open our voice, make a difference. I mentioned earlier, to stand with the vulnerable means placing yourself in a position of vulnerability. And I've noticed that not just in history, but guys like Arnold Viersen, the member of parliament, that he has, before it was cool, in fact, not only was it not cool, but it, it cost him so much political and social and relational capital. He was fighting for the women and girls and, and guys who are abused and forced into porn online. And, and he, he's been ridiculed. He's been mocked. He had an entire room of politicians laughing at him and laughed him off a stage when he first spoke up about this. And all of a sudden, now everyone's clamoring to be seen as part of this cause. If it wasn't for him, I promise you, if it wasn't for Arnold Viersen's consistent voice in, in, in and the times where he's been just like uh, mocked and um, he's been sidelined because of his stances, we wouldn't be where we are right now. And it's the same with abortion. Yeah, that's that's really good. And when you talk about looking at some of these, not only historical figures, but also um, people today who are really standing in the gap and, um, yeah, seeking to bring justice to the vulnerable and the marginalized, um, you know, th that's what inspires me as well. Often, uh, that's that's what keeps me going. I think about Sophie Scholl. I think about Irina Sendler and, and so many others. But you mentioned Jesus as well, and uh, and you mentioned the call of Jesus, which is to do that very thing. And, uh, and we're, we are recording this just a few days before December 25, which doesn't happen to be the date that Jesus was actually born, but that happens to be the date that we celebrate um, when Jesus was born as a universal church. Um, some people don't, but that's okay. That's a, a total another conversation for another, po another podcast altogether. 
Um, oh, I'm kind of interrupting, but it might be worth staying there for a second because there's some wonderful insight right there relevant to all of this. Uh, yo, I married a year ago and on my honeymoon in Russia, my wife is Russian, uh, my uh, uncle-in-law was driving us through town. Like I said, my wife and I don't have a vehicle. And so he's driving us through Moscow and he's uh, trying to ask me some questions in Russian. I don't speak any Russian. And so my wife was translating. And what he ended up sharing was that his, he has these two like primary objections to Christianity. And he said that if he could just get them answered, then he would embrace the faith. And no, he's never talked to a priest who can. And so he throws the questions at me. And, and one of them was what you just mentioned, that we don't know when Jesus was born. And he said, like, Protestants celebrate on, and like people in the West celebrate in uh, December 25th. And I, I think like Dutch people celebrate it like earlier in the month and Orthodox celebrate in January. And I, my understanding of Christianity is that Jesus is the centerpiece of the religion. And so if you can't even get right the birth of your main man, like how can I trust you on anything else? And I, I'd never heard that question before. My job as a full-time apologist is to answer questions and Q and A's on stages and any venue and everything. Heard a lot of questions, never that as an objection to Christianity. But actually the reason I mentioned this and even it's tying to uh, the, what we're talking about today, being anti-abortion is the fact that it actually highlights the fact that Jesus was born into the world in such a vulnerable place of how poor he was. Because at the time that Jesus was born 2000 years ago in the uh, ancient Near East, very few people would have known their birthdays. Those who knew their birthdays were those who were powerful and whose presence mattered. But Jesus' birth didn't matter to like anybody. And so, yeah, we, we know the birthdays of all these great kings and emperors and such, but you don't know the birthday of someone who is uh, like the, the poor, the poorest of the poor. And uh, that's something that I've definitely had people push back, even if they're like tracking with me about some of the arguments for the, the light value of a preborn baby. But uh, people will say, what if they're born into poverty? But Jesus was, the fact that we don't know when Christmas is, when his birthday was, is precisely because he was so poor. And yet we can see his life mattered so much. Boom. <laughs> what a way to kick that off. I love that. And and I think that's a perfect segue into really a, a bit of a deeper dive into the nativity story of Jesus and um, how it can um, help us gain appreciation for pregnancy, how it can help us in conversations about abortion. Um, a lot of people obviously say that Christmas is no time to talk about abortion. Christmas is the time to talk about stockings and presents and only things like that. But obviously, as we talked about last week, I want to say, um, we um, we absolutely should be talking about abortion um, during the Christmas holiday, not just because abortions are still happening, but because there's so much insight that we can take from um, the birth of Christ. And and not only the birth of Christ, but the, um, the incarnation of our Lord, right? That, that this isn't just about when Jesus was born, because we're not just about Jesus didn't become a human when he was born. Jesus became a human as a one-cell zygote. And and being the, the Christian apologist that you are, Daniel, I was wondering if you could crack open a little bit the very beginning of, of Christ's life and the, the circumstances surrounding it. We, we hear about it, hopefully more than just around Christmas, but hopefully we hear about it very often, but maybe we don't think too deeply about it. And I was wondering if you could crack it open a little bit for us. For sure. Well, I Thank you so much for mentioning that Jesus coming to the world as a, as a zygote. Um, I, uh, yeah, things might get heavy for a couple minutes. Um, Let's do it. Let's my, do my it. Wife and I got married a year ago and 
um, just, uh, so we got married in June. So I guess 11 months into, no, I'm not good at math. It was March. So whatever that is, some months into our marriage, we found out that we were pregnant and that was, uh, we we're just absolutely thrilled. And then in May, so 11 months into our marriage, we uh, found out that we had lost our baby and it was incredibly painful. Uh, I think it was the most painful thing I'd ever been through in my life. And then, um, our, our grief was washed away when he found out a few months later uh, that we're pregnant again. Um, we still grieve and miss our, our first baby, but it was it was just great to find out that that we would get to uh, hold the baby in our arms uh, in nine months. And then in October, uh, we actually lost our second baby eight and a half weeks into the miscarriage. And in that second time, just the way that the, the, the miscarriage happened, I actually got to hold uh, my, my little baby in in my hands after um yeah after it was miscarried and i'm just holding a tiny tiny little child of mine and as i as i was holding that baby like it was so such a painful but such a precious moment and, and looking at like such a tiny little being and seeing that this is my son or my daughter it, it actually hit me in that place of of pain like that, like I just how vulnerable God had made Himself, and at Christmas time we talk about like like God entered the world as a newborn baby. He was a newborn baby, but yeah, like you said, first he was a zygote, and then an embryo, and then a fetus, and uh, just seeing that, just the, how precious my little child was to me, um, even though it was so vulnerable, and to think, yeah, at Christmas and in the weeks leading up to them remembering the birth of Jesus. I think it's really precious for us to be remembering Jesus as a fetus, Jesus as an embryo, Jesus as a zygote, that this, zygote, that this is God, the, the apex of all the universe. He's the top of the food chain. He is the, the power beyond power. And yet to stand with the vulnerable means place, placing yourself in a position of vulnerability. And in God's concern for the brokenness, the lostness, the death and decay, of human beings he entered into our brokenness he broke into our darkness sharing in our vulnerability sharing in the full experience of human depravity disappointment decay and even death and just to picture like, i can't picture but the the one who breathed the universe into existence is uh, like even was even smaller than the tiny little baby i held in my hands and just as I had to like grieve the death of my little baby to think about the way that God, the father was going to have to grieve the death of his own son. Cause ultimately Christmas is not just about the birth of Jesus, but he, the birth of a man with a mission, which was to die for the fullness of human brokenness, depravity and sin that we might be redeemed. And uh, there just, there was so much in that moment of holding my child that I could just think through the, the experience of Jesus uh, coming into our world, as well as his dying for it. Um, I've heard uh, people say like the, the value of something is found in what someone will pay for it. And w as we think about Jesus coming into our world, sharing in our vulnerability in order that he might die for us. And, and he says that no one takes my life. I lay it down. So we can see that God himself was willing to give up his life for us to receive ours 
the value of every human being, whether that is an elderly person who is losing their mental faculties, or it is a child within the womb, that the value of every human being is the, the price of God's own life. It's infinite worth, and that's something worth fighting for. Well, my condolences, Daniel, to, uh, to your wife and you for the loss of, of both your children. That, that was, uh, that was a, a, a beautiful way to put it, recognizing that, um, yeah, our, our Lord was the same size and the same shape and the same age uh, of your little child uh, at eight and a half weeks. And, and one of the things, uh, as, as you're saying that, you, about uh, Jesus uh, saying, no one takes my life, but I, I give it up myself. I, I think about the, you know, we're, we're talking about abortion and abortion supporters often quote Jesus. They do it by accident. They don't, don't know what they're doing it, but they quote Jesus by saying, you know, my body, my body, they scroll it on cardboard signs and, and, uh, and yell it to us uh, every time they have the opportunity. Now, Jesus said that as well. This is my body. But just like you said, or just like Jesus said, and you quoted, um, no one takes my life, but I give it myself. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And when we look at the abortion industry, we see something that is completely different because we hear abortion supporters. We hear, yeah, just the, the whole movement. We hear people on the streets, whether they're not like actively supporting abortion, but this is just the position that they hold. They're saying my body as well, but they're saying my body, this is my body, and I am going to kill anyone who I perceive as infringing upon this very sacred body of mind that, you know, nothing can can inconvenience at all. And, and it really shows that abortion at the end of the day is the precise opposite of the Christian story. It's precise opposite of the gospel. And this being the Christmas season, it's the precise opposite of the Christmas story, a, a real brutal and bloody contrast yeah, is there so as we talk about you know we're talking about the the vulnerability of Jesus and the vulnerability of you know your little child and and the comparison to the the the, the life and the the stage of development that Jesus was in. Could you touch on some of the other difficult stereotypes? You mentioned that we don't know Jesus's birthday because he grew up in poverty. He was vulnerable in so many different respects. For those who aren't aware of the Christmas story. Jesus was literally born in a stable, a barn, um, laid on some hay wrapped in uh, old swaddling clothes uh, because there was no place for them in the, the local motel or inn. So what are some of the other stereotypes, some other parts of this nativity story that touch on Jesus's vulnerability? I mean, in, in the ancient Near East, to be poor uh, like it is today is, is a very vulnerable place to be. There weren't safety nets like we have, so it's quite vulnerable. But even worse than poverty of, of a financial kind is, is relational poverty or like social poverty. The stigma that can be associated with something that isn't conforming to the moral norms is insurmountable for anybody. Uh, there's all sorts of legal implications uh, for uh, if one was a uh, born out of wedlock or anything like that. And that's precisely how people saw Jesus. Uh, the part of the, the biblical narrative that I believe is historically accurate is that um, that that Mary was a, a young young woman, um, and that uh, God uh, sent an angel to her and said, um, I, "I'm gonna make you uh, pregnant, um, not through you having um, sexual intercourse, but that God's gonna do a miracle, and um, that this child is gonna be conceived by the the Holy Spirit, by God doing a miracle inside of her womb." And yet, though though those of us who believe the Bible believe that though there are some in Mary's context who believed her 
the majority just see a young woman get pregnant when she was a betrothed to be married. So she was, she's not married. She was betrothed to be married. So not only is she unmarried and also pregnant, but it seems as if she's actually like cheated on or committed adultery against Joseph, a man that she's betrothed to, the man she's betrothed to. And so there's so much stigma with that. And we see that Jesus carries this throughout the, his entire life, his entire short life. In John chapter 8, which is a first-person eyewitness account of Jesus, uh, we record the, the Pharisees saying to Jesus, so these are people who have all relational capital, so much social capital, and they say to Jesus, um, this is uh, John chapter 8, verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And what they're saying that right there, when they say we, we weren't born of sexual morality, they're saying this because they're insinuating, hey, like, Jesus, you are a bastard child. We don't know who your actual father is. We know who our father is, but you don't because your mom uh, had you out of wedlock uh, or before getting married with someone we don't know who that is. And so we can see that, yeah, that Jesus carried that social stigma through. His mom, Mary, would have had it uh, while she was um, pregnant with him. And people saw a pregnant woman unmarried, a pregnant teen unmarried. And then Jesus would have carried that stigma with him through his whole life. Uh, and uh, we definitely hear uh, people share um, that as one of the reasons people can have, should have abortions. That What if someone is just not ready to have a child? What if they're not in a stage of life? What if uh, any stigma that can be attached to a child? And we see that that... Anybody who finds himself in that scary place of uh, unplanned pregnancy or a pregnancy they weren't, um, yeah, what doesn't fit into their life and plan of being married with whatever that 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 Jesus has experienced what it's like to be um, stigmatized, and uh, he relates to you. Yeah, and so a, a follow up question I want to pick your brain on, um, Daniel, is is building on that understanding of of the culture. I, I think that we see that again even in um, First Math. Uh, First Matthew, Matthew chapter one of Joseph being being a just man when he finds out that his fiance is pregnant, knowing that it wasn't he that impregnated her, um, plans to put her away discreetly, and and it's only through the revelation through a vision that he realizes, no, I have to actually stand up for my wife and journey through all of the social stigma that's um, naturally going to come from this, and and really the the genuine manhood of Joseph at that time, I guess, as three men talking about abortion. Peter and I have already talked about this on an episode before. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. How um, how culturally it would have been accepted for him to put away his wife and yet realizing that, no, he, he's going to stand up for his fiance, for his child and do the hard thing, as it were. That together with the entire King Herod slaughtering all of the the kids two and under, all the male children two and under. Just wondered if you could um, maybe unpack that a little bit more about maybe a little bit as as we Catholics call it the Holy Family, um, uh, Mary Joseph and, and Jesus. I know that you guys aren't Catholics, but I'll, I'll just throw that out there. Uh, Mary uh, Mary Joseph and Jesus, what they would have endured totally, and then also maybe building in a little bit about uh, King Herod there as well. For sure, even your mentoring of of, of Joseph. Uh, his desire in, in his being a righteous person, he wanted to be give Mary such dignity by divorcing her quietly. Uh, and and then you mentioned Herod, who is 
actually went on to try to slaughter all the two-year-olds and under because he wasn't quite sure when Jesus was born, but he wanted to slaughter anybody who could possibly be Jesus so that Je- so he just cut off any rival king. And those the, the contrast of those two men is so relevant for a discussion on our need to fight against abortion because you'll notice that the, the desire to hold on to power draws Herod to end up trampling the vulnerable. Whereas Joseph's willingness to share in the vulnerability of Mary is a key ingredient for him doing the right thing and safeguarding her. Now, if, if this was a podcast to my member parliament friends, I might be uh, driving home and they're like, hey guys, do you see how you guys are in positions of power and you look at Herod, don't be Herod. But I actually think that's just as relevant to every one of us because every time we have the choice as to whether or not we're going to do anything for the vulnerable, we are facing that same choice that Joseph and that Herod faced. And only one of them made the right decision in his embracing of vulnerability. But even if it's, what should we do with our finances? Should we be giving more? Can we be giving more to anti-abortion causes? Uh, Giving away money is a reduction of power. You'll have less power for it. You're not, yeah, you can't do more cool things with your money, getting... Yeah, helping your money make money or, or anything else. You're not going to be able to afford the vacation you want or whatever else. So just you're emptying yourself of some of your resources. And uh, a lot of the times we in the West who are pro-life, um, we, we think abortion is, is like what Hera did, slaughtering innocent young lives. And yet we all just often mindlessly choose to hold on to power. And, and it can look the same if um, maybe a friend of ours, we hear there's a, a crisis pregnancy that they're thinking of. Um, putting the, the child to death through abortion. And we know that if we speak up, we might be actually uh, losing some power, losing some relational capital. And so we choose to be quiet. There's just so many different ways that getting involved in anti-abortion work, actually trying to make a difference, whether nationally or locally, will always be the same question that Joseph and Herod face. Are we going to try to hold on to power or will we sharing the vulnerability of those preborn babies. One one last question for me that I'll, I'll pick your brain on, switching gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about the hardship that Christ and, and his family would have gone through early on. Changing gears a little bit towards um, kind of the, the dovetailing of Mary's visit to her, her cousin Elizabeth and the leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb and how often when we go to marches and rallies and, and whenever Christians speak up on, on abortion and defend life, we see a, a wide variety of different Bible verses that are cited and, and beautiful passages from Psalm 139 and Jeremiah. Um, this is one of my favorite passages in kind of dovetailing with the evidence that, that we know scientifically as well. I, I don't think many people probably look at the Bible as being their their biology textbook per se, but I think it's beautiful this experience that Mary, Elizabeth, Jesus, and John have in this visitation. Um, and again, I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and, and share, is that meaningful? Does that give us any kind of extra insight into um, the life of Jesus? I, kn- I know that we're probably hashing over ground that's very, very elementary, I suppose. But maybe just unpack that one last um, little bit from me on the the joy and beauty of that experience after we've spoken a little bit about the hardship and challenges that um, Christ would have faced in his early years, I guess. For sure. Well, as anybody listening who has ever experienced uh, becoming pregnant when it just didn't seem like a convenient season or this was part of your life plan, 
um, the when you first hear the news, even if you want to be very happy about it and you're able to kind of uh, coach your heart into a place that is much more positive, uh, the, when you first hear that news, you, you, you can, I can, I can imagine when feeling uh, quite um, just overwhelmed and, and your mind's going through all the implications and the sacrifices you're going to be making. And when Mary was in that early stage, it was quite early in her pregnancy, uh, Jesus would have still been an, an embryo within her. She goes up and visits her cousin who also had a miraculous conception. Uh, it wasn't from the Holy Spirit, but it was uh, God had worked a miracle that she and her husband had conceived, even though she had they were infertile until she was, I believe, into menopause. Like like she, her body, this is a miracle. And so they're, they're both these very unexpected pregnancies. She's a little further along, and and Mary goes and visits um, her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is pregnant with the famous John the Baptist, not famous right now. He's not a renowned prophet right now. He's a fetus. And the Bible records for us that 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 John the Baptist actually like leapt within her womb. That there she would have felt some like what would have felt like some severe kicking right there at the presence of the embryo Jesus inside of Mary. And so the fetus John rejoiced and danced within the womb at the the presence of the embryo Jesus. And that's such a validation and affirmation of the value of, of human beings that this fetus was actually the first one to really um, celebrate Jesus. A fetus celebrated an embryo. Uh, before the wise men, the magi showed up, before the shepherds came rolling in, it was actually a fetus celebrating an embryo. And that's for sure a validation of the pro-life position. I, I will say, even as we're talking about Christian stuff, my job, I'm now a full-time Christian apologist, that for me, my my like pro-life convictions in many ways aren't based on any Christian apologetic arguments. Honestly, it's based just on basic science. And science is not controversial on this one. Um, we know that human life begins at conception. And, and then my conviction about fighting for human life does come from the Bible. For me, a huge part of why I try to give my, my life and myself and, and try to be willing to embrace the powerlessness of really sharing in vulnerability is because um, Jesus has won my heart and he calls us not just to believe in him, but to follow him. And Jesus is so clear that his mission in life and in his death and in his coming back to life is to be light in the darkness. That's how John introduces the first person eyewitness account of John introduces the Christmas story of Jesus breaking into the world by saying light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And all throughout the Bible, Jesus, God is calling us to stand with the vulnerable, to be a voice for the voiceless. And so when I look at just the basic science on human life and see how therefore abortion is the intentional killing of uh, innocent little human children, and then I see the call to stand for the vulnerable. I believe that that preborn babies are the most vulnerable demographic in Canada. Um, you're, you're, we're seeing hundreds of, of preborn babies being torn apart every single day, not by like some bad guys out there, but by our our universal health care, one of like the icon symbols of what it means to be Canadian. And so um, you've mentioned on this podcast already, I'm rambling a little bit, but forgive me, mentioned uh, different issues, human tra fighting human trafficking, fighting uh, pornography, stuff like that. Every one of those movements and issues matters so much. But as I look at where is my time needed, where's my money needed, where am I needed? I want to make sure that I'm lending my voice and myself to where it's most needed. And so when I was working for a member of parliament fighting human trafficking, I was aware that though that's a very sacred work. 
that the moment I quit, someone else, there'd be a lineup of people applying, probably people better qualified than I am to a better job than I am. And so I, I treasured my time there. I wasn't there for that long. And sure enough, when I quit, huge lineup. I also noticed that I tend to drift toward whatever causes is going to be the most comfortable and best for, for my advancement. So when I'm on my resume or my bio, like the, the, or even my social media, you know, I, I just drift toward mentioning, you know, I, I'm passionate about finding human trafficking and stuff like that. Um, it always gives me a little social capital. If I'm on an airplane and someone asks me about stuff and finding human trafficking comes up, they'll think that's really cool. But I notice myself just drifting away from talking about the topic of abortion. That the, the anti-abortion work I do doesn't so readily show up in my bios because I know that can shut doors. And I know that the, the pro-life work I've ever done, anti-abortion work I've ever done, I believe if I don't do that, probably someone else isn't going to step in there. And so I would just want to encourage every one of us and myself again, I have to hear this again and again and again, but let's not flatter ourselves with the charitable work that we do, but let's be intentionally trying to pull ourselves back from the stuff that is actually about ourselves and let's keep making sure we are willing to share in the vulnerability of those we're trying to help that we will be crushed with those being crushed but not silenced on their behalf yeah that's uh that's gold right there and and one of the i just want to touch on how you mentioned the science of the pro-life position that is one of the most convenient aspects of the work that we do is that there's like you said there's not like you know, half the half of the scientific community is, uh, you know, they say that human life begins at another particular stage and, and the other half says that it's at fertilization. But pretty much right down the board, we're looking at scientists who say this is when human life begins. The real question is that they have is when should we actually begin to value this human life and when should we give them the right not to be killed? Um, and unfortunately, many Many in the medical community and the scientific community think it should be a significant point after uh, they begin to exist, some up to birth, and some uh, philosophers even would go so far as to say after birth uh, as well. But you mentioned, Daniel, about the importance for us not to pat ourselves on the back because of the great work we're doing and, uh, you know, consider ourselves uh, just and righteous um, in, in the community and, and in God's sight just because um, we've done a few things here or there. But could you could you give some practical tips, I guess, or practical examples or um, just ways that we can step into the vulnerability of preborn children? And I ask this because we're not preborn children. I mean, I'm 26. Cam uh, is just, just a hair older than I am. And we are a, a long ways removed from the preborn stage. I, I have a, a child who's in the womb right now, so maybe I'm, I'm pretty close to that. But um, uh, for, for, you know, I don't know any preborn children personally. I don't know any preborn children personally at the moment who are about to be aborted. What does it mean for me? Give some, 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 some practical examples of what it means for me to, to step into their vulnerability. And you mentioned, you mentioned finances, which is really important, but are there a few others that you would suggest as well? Yeah, I think that just look at what resources are in your life and then what you can do with that. So for me, the three different sets of resources maybe you guys i'd love to hear your guys input because you do more work fighting abortion than i do but i i would see that i have the resource of time i have the resource of money and i have the resource of my voice and so that's kind of three categories that i want to be using uh, and then each have subcategories but when it comes to finances um i i think that 
all of us, if, if everybody in Canada who cared about abortion, who said they were pro-life, was donating to pro-life causes, we would find that the pro-life movement was more effective in Canada. And this is true for all the different causes we mentioned today. You're, you're having like, um, uh, you're having these not-for-profit, uh, in some cases, they're charities on the abortion issue. They're not even always get to be char uh, charities because Canadian tax law will like stop um, them from being able to do stuff if they got able to give charitable tax receipts. And so you're having organizations who are uh, support raising and people who are, um, yeah, just that there's, there's so much time that goes into these people who are having to support their uh, fundraise their own salary going up against multi-billion dollar industries. And that, that's just not a fair fight. And we all know like money talks. We know that resources can help all these kinds of things. So anyone listening, see if part of your monthly uh, giving includes the pro-life movement. And if it doesn't start, because you can tell what someone cares about based on what how they spend their money. Yeah, I, I think of one of the one sermon I heard um, where the, the question, it's all stuck to me. I, I forget every other point of that sermon. But one of the things he asked was, how does your bank account, how does your bank statement um, bear witness to the transformation of the good news in your life? And that, that's something that's always stuck with me. Another thing is your voice. I want to encourage people. Not everyone listening to this podcast believes in God. And uh, if, if you don't believe in God, yo, find me on social media. And I would love to chat with you about that. Listen to why you don't believe. And maybe help present you some uh, other reasons that you might want to change your mind. However, those who do already believe in God, um, I want to encourage you to be praying. In, in Proverbs, I think it's chapter I think it's chapter 28, but you have... You can Google it yourself. It says, many men seek the face of the ruler, but from the Lord comes justice. That's been a guiding principle for me, especially in my time in Parliament Hill. There's always so much initiative to try to get the face or the attention of a leader. But like, let's actually seek the face of God. I believe that prayer makes a difference. And so even before you figure out what you're going to do with your finances for the movement or what you're going to do with your time, use your voice and pray today. You can even turn off the podcast right now. Just start praying. You're going to make a difference. So do it. Another one is of your voice is social media. Like we have more ability to get information out there than ever before. So let's use our voice, whether it's our actual audio, audible voice or it's our social media. But let's make sure that we are actually using the, the platforms we have to be able to make a difference. But on that, often the use of voice stuff just is reduced to raising awareness. And uh, when I worked for a member of parliament who's now retired, in every speech, the crescendo had to be uh, uh, that... Um, education is our greatest weapon and generally what was meant by that was just raise awareness i'm convinced that that's not true it's one of the reasons i was thrilled when i left that and began being able to give my own speeches because i was able to not make that the crescendo of my talk and that's because the bystander effect there's a lot of studies that show that the more people at the scene of the crime the less likely anyone does anything about it so when we raise awareness and rely on education as if that's our uh, that's our big thing we've done for the cause. We're just adding more people metaphorically to the scene of the crime. But get, hearing more about how bad a problem is, it might be a necessary ingredient to find the conviction to do something, but it's not enough because we get paralyzed by the problem. We get paralyzed by the magnitude of the problem and feel like there's no difference we can make. However, studies show that when there is a, a crime happening and there's a bit of a crowd, but someone intervenes, then that actually snowballs and more people intervene. And so action begets action. And so if I want to see more people get involved, I'm agitated that more people aren't doing stuff about abortion. I want to not only raise awareness and use my voice, I want to make sure that I'm using my time. And so I want to encourage people to, you can contact the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. I think they're the most effective pro-life 
organization in Canada making a difference against abortion. Contact them and see ways that you can get involved as a volunteer. If maybe some of you want to quit the job that's just sucking your soul and you feel like you're wasting your life, you want to get involved with your day job, making a difference, see if you can get a job. But you know, give your time, volunteer time, daytime to make a difference. Because as you actually take steps to make a difference, others in your circle will start to be involved as well. Uh, on that, I want to encourage people, whatever job you're doing, there is a way for you to make a difference. I know on the anti-human trafficking, there are um, truck drivers. They're driving trucks, and some of them just enjoy the long drive. Other people are like, man, I was made for more than this. My life was supposed to be an epic battle against good and evil. You love Marvel movies because you just it's the life you wish. You know you're born to be a hero. Well, one guy felt that way, and he thought, I don't need to quit being a truck driver. I need to figure out how I can use what I'm doing to fight for, for victims I believe in. So he went and he read a whole bunch of stuff online and realized that actually the, like the big truck routes in Canada are also the same routes where, where women and girls, often indigenous women and girls, are being human trafficked. And so he became able to begin, um, he was ready to find the clues that someone was getting human trafficked at truck stops and stuff. And they actually start a whole organization for truck drivers against human trafficking. And they have helped rescue human beings. I know the same, similar stories of flight attendants. Whatever job you're in, uh, you learn how you can make a difference. It will take some imagination. It will take education. But more than anything, it takes a willingness to share in vulnerability. Because it will always mean a sacrifice on your part. Even if it's just the sacrifice of time and mental capacity to come up with the ideas to change the world. Yeah. And just to build on that as well, this is going to sound really greedy, but we often talk about, yeah, um, finances, outreach and prayer. And and we don't just want one of the three, right? Like maybe you're in a really strong financial position. You say, okay, the, the one thing that I'll do is financially support them, or I've got lots of time in my hands and that'll be my one. I want to invite you and not just invite you because that seems a bit soft for what I'm trying to do. I want to challenge you to integrate all three right? Uh, especially you who are coming from Christian backgrounds. If you're not coming from a Christian background, we're certainly going to welcome your prayers as well. But everyone can pray. Everyone can be financially partnered in, in some capacity and everyone can dedicate some time or energy. It's not simply going out every single afternoon necessarily. If that's not within your realm of ability with how much time you have available with the responsibilities that you currently have, then then that's understandable. But maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once a year, whenever you have the opportunity to go out and have a conversation and use your voice, do it. Whenever you have an extra $5 or $50 or $500 here or there, make it um, a, a worthwhile investment in saving babies. Whenever you have five minutes to pray for those who are experiencing challenging pregnancies or those who are advocating for preborn children, please offer that prayer up. Peter, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, Daniel, you mentioned that uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you because they don't believe in God, they can come find you. But I want to give you that opportunity oh, right yeah. now. We talk about Jesus and like, yeah, okay, cool. He, he was vulnerable. He was in a, a tough spot. Um, he seems to do okay. Uh, and then he ended up dying. So, but yeah, he, he experienced a lot of the things that, that we experience. Um, but you're also talking about all this other injustice that's happening in the world. You're talking about sex trafficking, human trafficking, uh, abortion, um, and just like so many evils integrated into all of these things. So, th so my question is, and I know you've heard this many a time as a Christian apologist, but my question is, how can we believe in Jesus as king, or how can we believe in Jesus as a king that we should believe in when all of this injustice is happening, when everything like this is happening around us? Yeah, I, I feel the weight of that question. I actually was preparing a talk 
on, uh, it was called as Gracious God or Moral Monster. It was looking at the toughest Old Testament passages, the ones that seem really brutal, uh, where God seems like he's a cosmic bully. Uh, I was preparing this talk, and yet we had uh, just received news of the death of of a, a young man. And it, this was on the heels of our mis second miscarriage. And it just was too much for me. I, I had to text my boss and say, hey, I, I, can I please have uh, this day off? And I, I just needed to clear my schedule and just just grieve. And as I, as I got back to work um, the next day, and I'm trying to prepare this content on, on the character of God, I found myself not simply trying to answer other people's questions, but asking their questions myself. God, are you a moral monster? How on your watch, how can such pain happen? How can this be? And the, the, I, I, in, in those moments, I am comforted by a couple things. And one of them is those questions are actually asked by people all throughout the Bible, that the men and women who have taken their faith in God seriously ask those questions. And that's partly because it reflects the very heart of God. When Jesus was himself on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not asking like, as if he just needs some intellectual answer, like, God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he's, he's crying out lament to the heavenly father saying, why have you done this? So God himself, the God, the son is asking God, the father, this same question. God, if you're really good, how can this possibly happen? And that carries with it the question, if this is happening, maybe you're not really good or maybe you're not really real. It's, it's the problem of evil. The thing that brings me back to a place of believing in God, even when I'm finding it hard to in the light of, of senseless suffering and evil, is that what are our options? What are our options when we're faced with such pain and loss? The death of my two little children this past year. Well, is, is, if, my, if my impulse is to say, you know what, forget about God. There is no God. That leaves me in a much worse place, and here's why. Richard Dawkins is one of the world's most famous atheists. He's a well-published author. He writes both for academics and for the public uh, from Oxford University. Uh, he's kind of one of the lead voices of the New Atheists. And he writes in his book, A River Out of Eden, he writes about how if we need, as he's saying himself as atheists, like we need as atheists to have the courage and the conviction to see our atheism through to the logical end. And so he has this blistering paragraph where he says that the universe is blind, pitiless, and indifferent. He says in that paragraph that if that there is no rhyme or reason to human suffering, uh, though he doesn't use these words, I would summarize that, that that page of his book as he's essentially saying that there's no difference between a human being being crushed and a leaf being trampled. We're just organic matter. But I believe that in every human heart, we, we know instinctively in the deep places of our soul, that's not true. It just isn't the case that uh, uh, maybe a, a topic for the podcast, but there's this really dramatic uh, story from my life where uh, a neighbor and I were looking for uh, this lost girl. She was in a missing child poster and uh, the worst was feared and we're searching the streets for her. And when I think about us looking for this lost child on these, like literally in the worst neighborhood in Ottawa, like, is there a difference between a kid looking for their lost toy and us looking for this lost girl? I, no matter how much Richard Dawkins may try to say that that our feeling of, of, of her value and, and the loss we felt in her being lost, 
that that's just subjective truth. We know that's not true. And we know that's not true precisely in the most painful parts of our life. So if, if human life is to have value, atheism is unable to provide, I think, any rhyme or reason to it. But instead, we see that if, if, if the violation of human beings is actually something that matters, if we can call that evil, then there also must be something good that differentiates, differentiates itself from evil. And if good and evil are real categories, then there must be something that separates the two, a moral law. And if there is a moral law that's woven into the fabric of the universe that resonates in our human heart, then there must be something that has established that as true, that is not subjective, that's not part of the universe, but outside of it, that can make that real. And that's the being that I would call God. And so I, when, I, when I see senseless evil, the same evil that makes me sometimes want to reject or question God, um, as I think about it, I think logically, I'm brought back to a place where I'm like, you know what? In order for my cries of pain to find any affirmation, there must be a God. And that brings us to the question, of, oh, then Jesus is true, but then what God might that be? And there's a, an incredible poem that I love by Edward Shalito that speaks into my experience of suffering. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And this poem unpacks for us the beauty of Christmas that God, in the words of the Bible, emptied himself, becoming nothing. And that he did that because he wanted to rescue and redeem human beings through his death and his resurrection. I mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, like this eyewitness account or this first person eyewitness account, part of my coming to believe that Jesus isn't just a beautiful, inspiring idea, but that he really is real. And as real as my pain is, he's realer still is the fact that we have good historical first-person eyewitness accounts. My master's was in history, and though I was looking at a more recent movement to end the slave trade, you can apply the same principles I use in my master's to looking at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We have the same types of evidence that historians look for when we're trying to find out if something is historically accurate. And the evidence regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus, I think, is so overwhelming that for me to have intellectual honesty, I would have to believe that this is true, that he actually died and came back to life. And a man that dies and comes back to life is a man listening to on his perspective of human worth, on the origin, meaning, destiny, morality, all those questions. And that all brings me back to believe that God is legit. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's uh, that is a really, really good place to wrap this up. Um, Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you for talking about one of the passions of your life, maybe the great passion of your life, uh, which is the Christmas story and the, the birth of Jesus and the beginning of his life here on earth. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Well, I know we're over time. We're like an hour over time. But if I can say one last thing, I discovered please, something new about please. the Christmas story today. And it's from my colleague, Sam Albury. I was listening to a talk he gave recently. And he points out something that anyone familiar with the Christmas story probably already knows, but that um, just shortly after the birth of Jesus, his parents, Mary and Joseph, bring him to the temple for his dedication. And there's someone there, an old man named Simeon. 
and Simeon gets to meet Jesus. And Simeon is this very old man. He's one of the few people who really ca- like recognizes who Jesus is and all the implications thereof. And so in Sam's talk, Sam Albury asks, like, Did you, what, was, what was Simeon waiting for? And the Bible says what Simeon was waiting for. And I, I would have answered and I actually asked my other housemates uh, uh, that's, uh, who, who, what Simeon was waiting for. And none of us actually got it right. The Bible says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that word consolation means the comfort. That Simeon was just waiting throughout his whole life and he's deemed righteous. He's lived a worthwhile life because he was just waiting in expectation for God to comfort his people. And I share this, even though we're over time, because 2020 has been brutal, not just for my wife and I, but for so many of us. There's such a sense of loss and limitations and pain and decay and fear and uncertainty. We are so hurting. And just as the first Christmas, Jesus is the, the, the fulfillment of Simeon's hope that he brought him comfort. I want to encourage everybody not to try to bury our pain and numb our sense of heartache, but like Simeon, to turn our attention to Jesus and to welcome him afresh into the brokenness of our life because it is the only place, because he is the only one who can bring us the real comfort and light into our darkness. Amen. Yeah, that's that's really good. Before I, I close this, do you have one more thing you want to share? Or are we? <laughs> I do. I just want to say Merry Christmas, fam. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Merry Christmas to one and all. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys so much. And thank you everyone who's listened to this podcast. All right, everyone. That was the Reverend Daniel Gilman. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning, we really enjoyed this this episode and this conversation, and I really, really hope you guys did as well. And uh, if you have any questions about anything that we discussed, do reach out to us and we will either answer those ourselves or get you in contact with Daniel if that is your desire. I promised at the beginning that we have a book giveaway. We are giving away the book Stuck, A Complete Guide to Answering Tough Questions About Abortion. How can you win that book? You might be asking. Here is the answer. It's pretty simple. Number one, find the pro-life guys on your podcast catcher. A podcast catcher is like Spotify or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or CastBox or Player FM or wherever it might be. I mean, wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, go find the pro-life guys there. Hit that subscribe button and then rate the podcast. Some podcast catchers don't have the rating option. If it does, please rate it. Uh, rate the podcast. We really hope for five stars, but we also want you to be honest. But five stars is a wonderful gift to uh, the pro-life guys here. And then just give a comment. Comment on the podcast, comment on an episode, letting us know what you thought about the episode or what you think about the content we're putting out. And uh, that's your entry. Um, so that that's, that's it. That's your entry. We do ask that you do one more thing, though, um, just to make sure that we know that you did this. If you could just screenshot the comment and the rating and send it to us would be wonderful. You can send it uh, to email at prolifeguys.com or you can do any of the, the direct messaging options that you can find on Facebook, the Pro-Life Guys podcast, or Instagram at Pro-Life Guys, or Twitter at Pro-Life Guys. Let us know that you entered and you will be entered in to win a signed copy of Stuck, a complete guide to answering tough questions about abortion. It is the book we we page uh, before we we get into episodes, before we have these conversations to make sure that that everything we're saying is the best thing that we can say. So um, that's that's that. 
Cam, my friend, I do this every time to you, and and I know sometimes I put you on the spot because I I don't let you know that I'm going to do it, but do you have anything that you would like to add before we finalize this second last episode of the year? You know what? I I almost always give the exact same challenge of encouraging people to have conversations. We've already had that episode on how to have good conversations about abortion with friends and family over this Christmas period, but I also just want to invite and encourage each and every one of you to um, take some time to reflect on this past year and and recover and recuperate as we launch into 2021. I'm excited for all the new pro-life initiatives that we're going to be launching at CCBR and the Pro-Life Guys podcast. I'm excited to fight shoulder to shoulder with wonderful people like you across the country and around the world. And in the conversations you're having, please continue having them. And also please find some time during this um, beautiful Christmas season um, to reflect and prepare yourself for the coming year, whether you're listening to this over the Christmas break or whether you stumble upon this anytime else in the year, please um, take whatever opportunity you have to be thankful, to appreciate the beautiful life that you've been given, and to reflect on how you can defend the lives of those around you. That's right. And to one and all, from Cam and myself, the pro-life guys, have a Merry Christmas, everyone, and God bless you and your family and your loved ones, and all those around you. Thank you for tuning in once again, and we hope you tune in next week.